The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're talking with Dr. Dan Siegel. He is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. Today, we're discussing his book, Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. So, Dr. Siegel, welcome to the show. Rebecca, thank you for having me. So, what inspired you to write this book? Well, you know, I'm a mental health professional, uh, a psychotherapist. I'm trained in the field of psychiatry. And what I noticed in the field of mental health is that no one actually defined what the mental was of mental health. Uh, And this absence of a definition of the mind, I felt was really restricting us as professionals and in the larger field of medicine, uh, this absence of a definition of the mind really keeps us from understanding deeply how we can create the health of the mind, a healthy mind. So um, I wanted to explore with a lot of different disciplines in mind what we might come up with as a working definition of the mind. And that's why I wrote the book, to talk about the journey um, that has gone over the last 40 years of trying to come up with a working definition of the mind and see if it's helpful for helping people become healthy. Well, and has that helped to to come up with this or attempt to come up with a definition? Yeah, it's been profoundly helpful because, number one, it allows us to consider that unlike what a lot of people in in academic fields say, which is that the mind is simply a word we use for brain activity, in my view, the mind, meaning your feelings, your thoughts, what you're aware of, uh, a sense of hope, of dreams, of longing for things, of belonging. All these aspects of your subjective experience are what we mean when we use the word mind. And for me, the mind is not just something that is coming from your brain. The brain is extremely important, but it's not limited to the brain. It includes your whole body and even your relationships with other people and your relationships with nature. So for me, mind is something that's coming from both within us, within the body, including the brain, but also between us, between ourselves and other people and ourselves and earth. So when you were, um, before you wrote this book and you were realizing nobody was defining it, did we have any sort of definition? Like what were the answers you were getting asking the question, what is the mind? You know, Rebecca, it is the strangest thing, it's almost like being in Alice in Wonderland, you know, where things seem like odd and you can't believe your eyes. 
for your ears. So when I first started asking this question, it was about 25 years ago, and I thought a lot of different fields like psychology or psychiatry or even anthropology or sociology, all these fields that study culture for anthropology and groups for sociology and mental processes like feelings and thoughts and psychology or mental disorders like psychiatry, they would all have perhaps different definitions of mind, and the challenge would be how to have them come to some shared view of what their different definitions might be overlapping with, you know. But it turns out, and now I've asked over 100,000 professionals in these various disciplines, that basically no one has a definition of what the mind is. And my colleagues in these different fields will say things like, well, we use the word, but it, it's just a placeholder for the unknown. Or some will say, don't define the mind, because once you define something, you limit your understanding of it. Or, you know, the mind is simply brain activity, is what some people say. But we have a word, brain activity, for brain activity. And even if the mind, your feelings and thoughts, only came from your brain, having subjective feelings or subjective thoughts is simply not identical to brain activity. But it may, in fact, be that those things are coming from something much larger than just what happens inside your head. So um, what happened then was that there was no definition of the mind, and then offering one, which we can talk about, led to certain predictions that so far have been supported by carefully done empirical research by other people that then support that this definition might, in fact, be true. And then it says um, not only what the mind might be, but what a healthy mind might also be made from and what you can do in your life to create more well-being. So, you know, it, as you're talking about this, I mean, it, it definitely um, is going beyond what a lot of people probably think about on their, their day-to-day life because I, I feel like I'm more than brain activity you know with with having also feelings and different from the person beside me whereas yeah. you know if we were if we were in a cold room everybody would be cold in most cases but um, you know if if there was I was feeling something that didn't have to do with that room or even that was going on in the room it would be different than that person and mm-hmm. you know the it, it just, yeah, it definitely seems like we're more than that. We're, that makes us our individual as well. Well, exactly. And that actually raises, you know, the important dimension that comes from, you know, seeing that we're more than just what happens in our heads. And, uh, you know, in, in this view, what, what's so exciting about it is you, you say to people, you know, look, um, for 2,500 years since the time of Hippocrates, you know, one of the grandfathers of modern medicine, who said mind is only what comes from your head. And then the grandfather of modern psychology, William James, in 1890 said, yes, we know the mind is simply just coming from the brain. Well, those folks who set up modern medicine and modern psychology we're onto something, but the idea that it's only in your brain, this is the issue. So what, what saying the mind is what the brain does, uh, that's a, a, pl- a place to start, but it's not a place to end the exploration for what mind is. That's, that's my view. And, and then you can say, well, then what is the mind if it's not just the brain? 
you know, yeah, I, I, I think so. And, it, you know, for some reason, um, you know, that that saying the mind is what the brain does actually makes me think of the old Star Trek shows um, because they were very big on saying, well, we're human and that's what makes us human because we're not perfect and, and we're this way. Um, and it, it seems to be the same thing because if we were just brain activity, I think we'd be pretty perfect um, most of the time and um, we'd have... Um, we wouldn't do anything with emotion, which I think we do most of what we do with emotion. You know, we eat because we love that food that we're eating and and we choose to do certain things or be with certain people because they bring us joy. Right, right. Well, if you think about who brings you joy, this is a good way to ask the question, you know, what is the mind, you know, if it's not just brain activity. Think about a person who brings you joy, that when you're connecting to that person, you feel this incredible sense of joy, happiness, love, connection, you know, closeness. You say, well, when I'm with that person, and this is my experience when I'm with someone where I feel joy, there's this sense that what happens when he or she and I are together, when we're together, there's something that is created in the betweenness that's larger than just two individuals alone might create. And in this, in this something being bigger than the sum of its parts, you come across this fundamental idea of what happens when you take different elements, like let's say you, Rebecca, and me, Dan, we have two people, and then we're connecting in a respectful, collaborative way. So there's a we that's created that's bigger than just Rebecca and then Dan. It's a combination, and in that connection, you can feel a sense of joy, of elation, a feeling of becoming larger, because you are becoming larger. And then you can say, well, if the mind is created in the betweenness that happens, let's say, in a relationship, as well as the withinness, you know, what happens in your whole body, including its brain, what is the stuff of the mind that could be both within us and between us. And that question led me on this search years and years ago to finding a scientifically grounded way of answering that question that goes like this. What happens between people is how they communicate with each other. And basically what communication is, is sharing energy and information flow. So in this format, you know, we're sharing the movement of air molecules called sound, and we create meaningful patterns that's called information. But information is really the way in which we are taking energy patterns and having symbolic meaning that's embedded in them. So to put a relationship quite simply, it's the sharing of energy and information. And then you go, well, but what happens within your body, including the brain? And amazingly, it's energy and information flow. In this case, it's not so much sound or light, like seeing someone with light or hearing someone with sound. It's electrochemical energy flow that has symbolic value called information. So what's shared in the withinness of our lives is energy and information flow. What's shared in the betweenness is energy and information flow. So we've just come up with a common ground that allows us to say, well, if energy and information flow is 
something that's creating a system and it's flowing both throughout your whole body and between you and other people and you and nature, then what are the characteristics of this system and how can we understand what the mind might be within that system? So that's the exciting place we're at where you can then say, what is the system of mind and what is the definition of mind within that system? And that we can talk about, but I want to make sure you and I are on the same <laughs> Well, I think so. It's not the usual way people think, and I can no. be with the general public or parents or teachers or even scientists, and they just kind of stare at me and like, go, what are you talking about? You know, so. <laughs> well, you know, it, it is a little bit out there, and I, and I can see why, and it's probably because there's never been a definition before. So no matter how much we've studied or what we've done, um, this hasn't been approached. So, yeah. and you've talked to thousands of people, and you never got the same answer from anybody about never. what this is, right? So, right. Um, um, w- you know, what what is the definition? So when you look at the system this way, um, it, you know, it has a, a certain characteristics that call it a complex system. That's just a math term. And complex systems have been shown, to, like a cloud, for example, to have what's called emergent properties. What that means is that, let's say a cloud, you have water molecules and air molecules. That's what makes up the cloud. And it's a complex system for various reasons. But the bottom line is that these water molecules and air molecules are interacting with each other. And what emerges from them is what's called an emergent property. Now, one of those emergent properties is called self-organization. So this is now a proven aspect of our universe that if there's a complex system, it has an innate emergent aspect of it that will turn back and regulate itself, which is really counterintuitive because what we're saying is that there's a process that's arising from something, turning back and regulating the thing from which it arose. So therefore, it's now, again, arising from that which it already regulated. So it's regulating it even more. So it's this kind of loopy thing, which is probably why no one thought of it this way, but that's just straight from math. And then you say, well, maybe the mind is this, the embodied and relational, that's the location, not just in your head, it's in your whole body, and not just in your body, it's between you and the world. So embodied and relational, Emergent self-organizing, that's what we're proposing as a part of a complex system. Emergent self-organizing process that regulates energy and information flow. And once you look at it that way, you can ask the question, how do I optimize self-organization? And amazingly, you come up with a very simple answer that then is very practical because people can then say, I'm going to do this very simple thing to create health in my life. Okay. Um, We're actually going to talk about that when we come back from the break. Um, So we're talking today with Dr. Dan Siegel. He um, is the author of Mind, A Journey to Heart of Being Human. We'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Dr. Dan Siegel. He is a clinical professor of psychology at the UCLA School of Medicine. Today, we're discussing his book, Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. So, um, Dr. Siegel, uh, can you just explain what self-organization is? Absolutely. Well, the term self-organization is actually a mathematical term. So I'm not making it up. It's not something that just sounds good. It's actually a math term. And what it means is how a complex system, let's say like a cloud, organizes its own unfolding. So if you look up in the sky at a cloud, you know, a cloud could just line up its water molecules and air molecules in a straight line, you know, and it could be linear and rigid like that, but it's not. Or it could be completely random and just going across the sky without any kind of process that is regulating it. But it's not, and that would be chaotic. So between rigidity on the one side and chaos on the other is this self-organizational flow. And the math term is a little weird, but it's called maximizing complexity. You don't need to worry about that so much as think about a choir that's singing in harmony. That's how they maximize complexity. They are both differentiating how they sing in these harmonic intervals, but then they link together as they sing in their timing the same song. So a choir can reveal this self-organizational process. The cloud certainly does. What I think the mind is, 
one aspect of the mind is it is the self-organizing process of energy and information flow within the whole body and within our relationships. And then the way you optimize self-organization is you allow things in the system to be differentiated. That means be different or unique or special, like let's say a family. Everyone has their particular hobbies. Not everybody has to do the same thing. They can be differentiated, made different. But then what you do is you link. So when a child likes to play with a sailboat and another child likes to play the flute, you take time as a parent to honor that and link with your interest and connect with them with compassionate concern. So integration is the word we can use for when you link differentiated parts. It's how a cloud optimizes its self-organization. And the proposal is that when you are creating optimal self-organization, you're creating harmony. That means you're flexible, you're adaptive, you are coherent, which means you hold well over time, you're energized and you're stable. Those are five qualities that spell the word FACES, if you like acronyms. F is flexible, A is adaptive, C is the math term coherent, which means resilient over time, basically. E is energized and S is stable. So that's a faces flow of harmony. And when you're not in that faces flow, it turns out you go to either chaos or rigidity. So what happened with me was when I came up with this definition, I turned to the book of psychiatric disorders, and amazingly, you could reinterpret every symptom of every syndrome as being an example of either chaos, rigidity, or sometimes even both. And then the proposal back then was, and now there's a ton of research to support it, it wouldn't, we wouldn't want to say prove it, but it supports it, that all disorders that ever have been studied so far reveal impaired integration in the brain. And a study came out that shows that if you look at every measure of well-being, the best predictor of that is how integrated the brain is. So we're at this incredible moment where the idea that the mind is a self-organizing process is a proposal that is supported by the findings that suffering is associated with impaired integration. You go to chaos or rigidity. But well-being is associated with integration, and that's both within you, within the whole body and the brain, but it's also in, let's say, relationships where you honor differences, like in that family, you can all have different hobbies, different things you like, you all go to the ice cream store, someone likes vanilla, someone likes chocolate, someone likes strawberry, fine, but you go together. So you're differentiating, but linking. Okay. Um, So... I, I think you explained what a what a healthy mind looks like. I mean, I think you explained a healthy mind and unhealthy and an unhealthy one. Um, mm-hmm. But just to, I, I want to um, make that a little more clear as well, because it, it, just so that people can can follow. So, could you maybe explain using you know those terms as well as what that would look like, um, you know, from a personality point of view as well? What is a healthy mind in the end? Sure. So uh, a healthy mind would be a mind that's flexible and adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. I mean, it's literally defining what you would look for. There's a feeling of vitality and um, harmony in a person's life within them and, um, you know, in their connections with other people and or with nature. Um, so when the mind is not healthy, 
uh, it, if you look at all the different studies of unhealthy minds, it's either in rigidity or chaos. So let me give you an example. Um, if I was traumatized as a child uh, and didn't work that through through reflection or with friends or with a therapist or something, um, I would be prone to avoiding any situations like the one I went through. I would be shutting myself down from feeling the emotions I might have or feeling my body if my body was part of the trauma. And in that rigidity, I would be extremely predictable. So rigidity is like this unchanging, inflexible way of being. I could also, the same person, me, I could also have chaos as a part of my life. So I'd have intrusions of unwanted memories or intrusions of bodily sensations or emotions. So that would be an example of chaos. So a given person can have both rigidity and chaos with unresolved trauma. If you were going to work with me to resolve my trauma, you would want to differentiate the different memories I had from each other and then link them together within consciousness so that I could actually resolve the trauma. And then after you did that work with me, and I might be writing in a journal as well and really reflecting on what happened to me, once I've made sense of those painful things, then I no longer am prone to the rigid and chaotic ways I used to be that were giving me suffering. And now I have a sense of vitality. I'm energized. I don't disconnect from my body. I don't avoid things. I can be fully present in life and basically have a bring-it-on attitude where I say, I'm ready to face whatever life has to give me because I've become integrated. Okay. So... um when when we're looking at all this, I, I think that that's pretty clear. I think we all can can see that as well because it's not we haven't experienced um, having difficult times or feeling good and being on both sides of that. Um, but one thing I'm curious about is um, you know if, is the mind's subjective reality real? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> this is the funny thing. You know, when I was in medical school. Um, my teachers would tell me never to ask patients about what they thought or how they felt or what the story of their life was because the attitude was it was just the patient's subjective experience and it wasn't real. Hmm. And that's not what doctors do, I was told, over and over and over again. So, you know, you can see something called physical sight, that is, you can see with your eyes what's in front of your eyes. So we would do x-rays on the patients. We would do lab tests and read with our eyes the numbers that came out from the testing their blood samples, for example. And so we would have physical sight as a part of, of course, what we were doing. We were medical students, and these were our medical professors. But what they were missing was there's some other kind of sight you can call mind sight, sensing the mind, including subjective experience. So I realized that if you were just a physical sight person and became a professor of medicine, you could easily just say to people that other stuff doesn't exist because maybe for you it doesn't. So the reason I asked the question in the book, you know, is subjective experience real, is because it's not only real, it's really important. In fact, if you look at a doctor who does not pay attention to the subjective experience of their patient versus someone who does. Let's say you go in for a common cold. If your doctor gives you an empathic comment like, oh, Rebecca, 
you know, you're having some exams coming up now. It's May. You have final exams. You go, yes. Oh, it must be so hard for you to have a cold right before you're studying for your exams. Just says something like that. And the other physician in the study doesn't say anything like that. You will get over your cold a day sooner, and your immune system that we would test in your blood would be much more robust with just like a 30-second empathic comment where the doctor is identifying your subjective experience, your frustration, you have a cold before your exams. So this is just one of many examples where we can show relationships that focus on other people's subjective realities, their inner feelings, thoughts, memories, the meanings of things for them, or when you focus on your own, it actually promotes health. So it's not only real, but it's really, really, really important. Well, you know, it, it's it's also interesting when you, when you're saying, you know, when you went through school, not to ask people how they were feeling, and uh, I'm just wondering if that's, um, and I'm sorry for saying this because you're a psychiatrist, of where that um, people have got that belief that talk therapy doesn't work, as mm-hmm. maybe because traditionally it it's not helping them because empathy was missing. That's right. I mean, you know, it's um, it's a very sad state of, you know, my original field medicine, because I think the mind has not been defined. And so part of what I try to do when I teach in different professional settings is say, look, you know, we've just, for whatever reason, we've had all these fields of science and clinical practice, including, you know, medicine, you know, that doesn't define the mind. And therefore, you know, you can be a, you know, a physical site-based scientist or clinician and act like um, subjective experience is not real. And it's kind of like, you know, if you don't sense your own subjective experience, you aren't prepared to sense it in someone else. Mm. You know, and and um, it, it, it is, I, I, sorry, I'm trying to trouble getting this thought through, but, um, you know, I, I treat people with chronic Lyme disease and with diseases where, or illnesses where they haven't got much help from their doctor. And um, one of the common things that they are told is it's all in their head and just to get over it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, it, it upsets me because even if it was in their head, why would you treat someone that way? Um, I even totally if they had agree. A, a, even if they had a mental illness. And it's that empathy that's lacking that, as you're saying, studies are showing that the patients need so much to get better just to feel heard about what's going on with them, whether you uh, or I or as a practitioner believe that that's real or in their head um, or whatever is going on. Um, that's something definitely that that has been missing and I think is missing in a lot of cases just to help people, whether it's in medical standpoint, I'm just saying this because I heard a story today, or, um, you know, just in our daily relationships as well. I completely agree with you, Rebecca. And, you know, um, when people don't get a connection like that or told it's just in your head, you know, it, it's, uh, it's almost like they're told you're totally alone. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's no place for you to belong. Yeah. Just get out of my office, you know, this kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, there's a, a profound problem that comes up with that kind of attitude because basically the person who hears that 
doesn't know where to turn because they think, well, they've created all this suffering, they've, they've made these problems happen, and, um, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, a, a, a big um, issue, and, you know, any, anyone listening to us would, you know, you'd understand that this way of um, being alone, it, it's, it hurts so much that um, you you don't even know where to go with it, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, you know, I, I hear it a lot, and I think um, just one part as we're talking about empathy here of of me to help people heal, and I've always known this without knowing the study that you just talked about was that people have I have to hear them first. I have to mm-hmm. sit down with them and let them tell their story that that their doctor either hasn't let them tell, or hasn't believed, or hasn't been able to help them with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, this is where, you know, if you look at whatever illnesses people are facing, you know, making sense of your illness, how is it affecting you, um, what's your sense of what this illness is all about, uh, what's what's really deeply in it, and, and the meaning of the illness for you. So, you know, whatever whatever the cause, understanding your sense of what this illness means in your life, it does not say, oh, I caused this illness to happen or, oh, I'm the one who made me have this disease. It just tells you this is what this bodily experience I'm having uh, has as a meaning for me. So, you know, people sometimes say, well, how do you explore meaning? And it's, I have this kind of A, B, C, D, E thing, which is basically if, if you were saying, what's the meaning of my illness? So here's the A, B, C, D, E. What are, what are the associated images that come up? What are the associations that come up? This illness means, you know, I can never walk again. It means um, I'm guilty about giving myself exposure to this infection I got, or this means um, I'm this or that. So those are the associations. The things that come up right away, images, and, and there's a way of sifting the mind where you check with sensations, images, feelings, thoughts, whatever immediately comes up. The next thing is the B, the beliefs. What are the beliefs? Is there a belief in me, this is all in my head, as everyone's telling me, or that I created this, or that if only I'd done this or that or whatever? So what are the beliefs that come up? The C are the cognitions, and this is like thought patterns, like I've always been a bad person, I'm no good. These patterns that are often negative in us, that the illness we have may get us to condemn ourselves even more. So identify what those are because naming it allows you to tame it. This is, this is the issue. So, you know, we can, we can figure out what these cognitions are. The D is basically the developmental time that this might relate to. So it might relate to when you were a teenager. Or it might relate to, you know, when you were younger than that. So often there's a developmental meaning of an illness. And I don't mean meaning as in cause. I mean meaning as what's coming up in your mind. This is the meaning in your mind. And the E is the emotion. What's a general emotion? Well, guilt comes up, sadness. Uh, I feel completely helpless, things like that. So if you do the A, B, C, D, E, you know, associations, beliefs, cognitions, developmental period, and emotions, it's a good starting place to check in with yourself to say, the meaning of this illness is this, and it has nothing to do with what caused the illness. It's just literally saying you are a human being, you have a mind, and this is how your mind is responding 
to this particular condition that you're wrestling with. We're, we're actually going to take a quick break. Um, we're talking today with Dr. Dan Siegel. He's the author of Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. So we're going to be back shortly. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Dr. Dan Siegel. He is a clinical professor of psychiatry and the author of Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human. So, um, Dr. Siegel, before the break, you mentioned Mindsight, but we didn't get to explain that very well. Can you just talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Well, Mindsight is a term that I use. Um, It's actually very personal to me because... um, when I was in medical school, I, I was so affected by the lack of empathic concern of my teachers, I ended up dropping out. But when I ultimately decided to go back, I needed some term to remind myself that there is a truth to our interior meaning and emotions and thoughts. That's the mind. That we can see that mind. That's mind sight. So mind sight means basically 
three things. It's the ability to see your own mind, which we can call insight. It's the ability to see the mind of another person. That's called empathy. And the third thing is it's the ability to link these differentiated parts to create integration. So that's how you create kindness and compassion toward yourself and others. So those are the three things. Insight, empathy, and integration is what the word mindsight refers to. And, you know, we can see how you take the definition of the mind as this self-organizing process, say integration is the basis of health, and then you can say, how do I use mindsight, insight into myself, empathy for others, the ability to cultivate integration, to actually create more well-being in my life. And there are very practical things that come from a mindsight approach. You know, I talk about these in the mind book, of course, but also in a book called Mindsight. And uh, this next book I'm writing is about something called The Wheel of Awareness, which gives you a very practical tool on how to actually create integration in, uh, the, in your consciousness. Well, what is The Wheel of Awareness? Well, The Wheel of Awareness basically is a, a very simple practice. We, we distribute it from our website. People can just you know, stream it, and we've had a, almost a million people um, experience it. And it allows you to basically differentiate, that is to, to distinguish different aspects of consciousness that go like this. If you imagine a wheel with an outer rim and a hub that's in the center of the wheel, the simplest way of differentiating consciousness into its components is to say you have the experience of awareness itself in the hub and you have what you're aware of on the rim. So some people might call those the experience of knowing in the hub and the knowns are on the rim. So one example of what's on the rim is what you see with your eyes, what you hear with your ears, what you smell with your nose, taste with your tongue, what you feel with your skin in terms of touch. And that would be one segment of the rim. You then move this kind of metaphoric spoke of the wheel, which is a spoke of attention, over to the next segment. And that's the segment that includes the interior of the body, your sensations of your muscles, your bones, your interior organs like your heart, your lungs, your intestines. And you systematically go through that. You then move the spoke over to the third segment of the rim, which is the segment that includes your feelings, your thoughts, your memories, your hopes, your dreams. These are all your mental activities. And then the fourth segment of the rim you experience is your connections to other people, pets, the planet, anything with a P. You know, your connections to things outside of your body, your relationships. And at some point in a, in a more advanced phase, you can actually experience bending the spoke of attention around and aiming it right into the hub itself. And we've had just amazing feedback, whether when I do this in workshops or people writing us emails, you know, we get incredible uh, feedback about how the wheel of awareness um, for people with medical illnesses, for sure, with chronic pain conditions, but also facing psychological issues that are difficult, trauma, anxiety, things like that, find the wheel incredibly empowering because when you distinguish this spacious hub from the very chattery rim, you suddenly are empowered to have access to a kind of sanctuary of clarity. Some people describe it as a sense of openness and peace, of joy, of a sense of love, of a sense of connection. 
And what's been absolutely amazing is I've done this all around the world, and I, I just completed a study of 10,000 people where I recorded all the results of when they would report what they went through, and it didn't matter what country people were in or what their educational experience was or their age or their religious background. It didn't matter. The results, while everyone's unique, the results were also quite similar. Um, and so there's this really exciting thing that, you know, I talk about in the mind book about what this study of the wheel of awareness may mean in terms of how to bring more health into people's lives because when you build the strength of your hub, you're actually changing your capacity no matter what medical condition you're facing. You're actually changing your capacity to create a sense of peace within your mind no matter what's going on in your body. So how are you doing that? How are you making that change? Well, when you do the Wheel of Awareness practice, you're literally strengthening your capacity to have the mind rest more in the hub. And I can, if you want me to talk to you the science, that's just a metaphor, but there's a, a probable scientific explanation for what the hub really means. And it's basically the capacity for the mind to drop beneath all of the different, let's say, you know, uh, let's say someone's with chronic pain in their shoulder. So the pain in your shoulder has now taken over your consciousness. You're always aware of it. It's preoccupying you. It, it intensifies the more you focus on it. When you do the wheel of awareness practice, we found with people with chronic pain, they, they can have the experience, instead of being lost on the rim point, they actually can drop into the hub itself where there's a much bigger pool of things to access. So imagine if you had a tablespoon of salt and we had a very, very small teacup of water and we versus a thousand gallon tank of water. So the, the tablespoon is the same, but the container is different. When you put the tablespoon of salt in the small cup and I say, Rebecca, here, drink this, what would it taste like? It'd be salty. Incredibly salty, and you wouldn't drink it. Yeah. But if I put in a thousand gallons of water, and I said, "Here, would you like a sip of this water?" And you sip the water. What would that taste like? It would probably just taste like water. Exactly. So when you open up the hub by doing the wheel of awareness practice, you actually allow yourself to use your mind to hugely expand your sense of awareness, so that. The pain in your shoulder, instead of being in a small cup, that same tablespoon of pain is now embraced by a thousand gallons of awareness. So what does it mean to be aware? Yeah, well, that's the ultimate question. No one has an answer to that. I mean, I make a proposal in the mind book that's, you know, a bunch of scientists are very excited about, but we don't know that it's absolutely true. But just to go with that proposal... You know, I think that awareness, literally in its definition, is the experience of knowing. Like right now, if I go, did you know I went? Yes. Yeah, because you were aware of it. So that's what we mean yeah. by knowing. I don't mean knowledge or um, facts, but it's this awareness thing, if you want to use a word like that. So no one really understands what that that's about. Let's just put it out there. But with this 10,000-person study, what looks like maybe the case, underline maybe, is that energy flow moves along this continuum between this vast openness 
a possibility through a series of probabilities into one specific actuality. So like if I had a billion words I could say and you tried to guess, you'd have a almost impossible time guessing. But once I say the word Rebecca, you know, I've said your name and there it is. Of the billion words I said, I've now created the actual from a sea of potential. So we call that a plane of possibility. And this plane of possibility, I think, is the origin of consciousness. And so what that means is the hub is this plane of possibility. And then a thing like my shoulder pain becomes just one point. But if I'm completely filled with this chronic pain, then I've become that point and I've lost my access to this wider plane. That's what I think the Wheel of Awareness practice is doing, is it's training a person's mind to expand access to that plane of possibility where all things arise from, and instead of getting lost on one of what we call them peaks of actuality, instead of getting lost on a particular peak, which is lost on the rim, you learn to actually drop into this openness. That's the thousand-gallon tank. So um, how does this help us? Well, it helps us in profound ways because when you learn the technique, let's say, of the wheel of integrating consciousness, that's what it does. It integrates consciousness. It differentiates knowing from known and then differentiates all the different knowns from each other and then links them all together through attention. When you learn that, what people have described, this is not just a guess, but this is what the reports are, is people feel a deeper sense of clarity and calm inside of themselves. They feel this widening of a sense of their connection to other people. And what a number of people have described, and it's amazing, no matter what their background is, they once you translate it into English, what they're saying is basically the same, that they feel much more um, connected to other people. Their sense of identity is broadened, it's expanded, and in that expansion, they feel a new sense of meaning and purpose in life. And, uh, you know, what I try to do in the last three chapters of the mind book is, you know, take this research finding from the 10,000-person study of the Wheel of Awareness and say, wow, how do we use this to promote more well-being in our individual lives, in our family lives, in our collective lives? What does this mean? If this is what consciousness is, then how do we actually use it to improve our health? How do we actually use it, for example, to create something called presence? And what presence may be, and uh, I've written some papers on this subject with the, with the researchers in this area, presence of mind, which I think is this hub or, or plane of possibility, presence of mind actually lets you change an enzyme called telomerase, which maintains and repairs the important caps on your chromosomes. Presence also allows you to change these non-DNA molecules that sit on your DNA called epigenetic regulators and that changes their configuration so it optimizes a way of reducing inflammation. Presence allows you to improve your immune system functioning and presence has also been shown to improve cardiovascular function. So uh, what's absolutely amazing now is we have the way presence, which is a mental state that you can train with the wheel of awareness, Presence actually changes the molecules of your body that support medical health. 
Well, you know, I, I like what you just talked about because a couple of weeks ago I, I did a show with Michael Fossil about telomerase. Um, so <laughs> it's interesting that you're bringing that up a couple of weeks later and how, you know, it, it can be that, that simple as to just work on presence and awareness and we can repair, um, oh, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Alyssa Epple and Elizabeth Blackburn uh, wrote a beautiful book called The Telomerase Effect. And Alyssa Epple and I wrote a paper with two of my interns, um, Suzanne Parker and Ben Nelson. And in that paper, we talk about the science of presence and why, by looking at this plane of possibility, that presence likely creates increases in telomerase levels. And Elizabeth Blackburn, Alyssa Epple's colleague and co-author, she won the Nobel Prize for discovering this telomerase system. So we're talking about the most rigorous science that exists published in the most rigorous of peer-reviewed journals, and now looking at how the mind literally alters the molecules of well-being. Well, this this I definitely love, and uh, we're going to have to the, end the show at this, but I think that that's a really good place to end it. Now, is there, if somebody um, wants more information, is, the way, is there a way they can get a hold of you or find your book? Sure. If you go to Dr. Dan Siegel, so D-R-D-A-N, S-I-E-G-E-L, drdansiegel.com. You'll see a whole bunch of things that are available there, including the Wheel of Awareness practice and all sorts of videos that you can watch and stuff on this subject. And, you know, what's exciting about it is we have a whole Wheel of Awareness community now, and there's people who are really finding belonging in community through these connections that we do through these integrative practices. Well, this is great. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Rebecca. It's a pleasure. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.